Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel from Anshayam at Synagogue in Chicago and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Naso, what we can learn from an ancient ordeal. There are things in the Torah that are truly uplifting and wondrous to read, but there are things in the Torah that are absolutely cringeworthy. All right, we're going to get into some of the cringeworthy today, aren't we? You saw right through me there. We are going to talk about, for at least for me, one of the more, maybe the most, cringeworthy uh, laws in the Torah, and uh, one that rarely, if ever, makes it into the Hebrew school class. I remember many years ago, I was working with a bat mitzvah, and uh, I had the great idea that we should talk about this portion, mm-hmm. this part of the portion. It was when I looked at the, in the bat mitzvah girl and the horrified look on her face, <laughs> I realized that, that was an air of monumental proportions. So you backed and off. She actually did write about it, oh. but it was a very um, uncomfortable meeting. And, um, but the the idea behind what I was trying to teach her at the time, I stand by. So let's talk about it. This is a ritual called the ritual of Sota. And the Sota is kind of a, a ritual by ordeal. And the case is one where a woman is suspected by her husband of having an extramarital affair. And the woman has to drink a potion. And if the potion takes effect, that is to say, it's this bitter, bitter drink. If her thighs sag and her stomach distends suddenly from this potion, then it is clear that she, in fact, was unfaithful to her husband and will be dealt with. And by the way, it was the death penalty. Wow. Um, that doesn't sound uh, strange at all. No. Um, <laughs> so I, I wasn't, I, I don't think I was overstating this. I, was, I don't think yeah. I was overstating any of this. This is, this is beyond cringeworthy. And by the way, by the way, the husband is never liable for things like this. It's only the wife. Just yeah, in case course. I haven't, in case it's not cringeworthy enough, right? Right. If the husband is suspected of adultery, um, we move on, I guess. So you can you can kind of understand this bat mitzvah girl's response to, to me talking about this, right? Mm-hmm. And so, okay, I want to suggest to you today, and this will be a feat, I know, because you're already cynical to begin with. No, no. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that there's something actually remarkable about this in the sense that this ceremony, as distasteful as it is, no pun intended, is a huge step forward in the history of women in the biblical period. And to understand what I'm trying to say, we have to go back in time. We can't apply um, our thinking for today to this situation. And we're going back to a time when women were the possession of their husbands. They were quite literally chattel. 
and the husband could treat his wife as he saw fit. Now, there were mores in society, but what went on behind closed doors went on behind closed doors. And if a husband decided or became jealous of his wife or suspected her of being unfaithful, he, in most parts of the ancient world, could actually take the law into his own hands. Now, in the ancient world, there were also trials of ordeal for theft, for murder. They would make the suspect drink a potion to see if they were telling the truth or not. This is the only trial by ordeal in the entire Torah. And what I want to suggest to you, Jonathan, is that the shift here, the shift here is between the husband having total control over his wife to moving this to the central authority. The central authority is going to administer this test, this ordeal. And if the test uh, proves that the wife was not unfaithful, that is to say that she is unaffected by the potion, then the husband has to take her back. He can't simply cast her out. Now, I realize this is... um, this is kind of cold comfort in all of this, but I want to just put the whole thing out to you. I know I've been talking for a long time, but I've been, I want to put the whole thing out before you to have you react. Oh, no, actually, I'm not as cynical as you might have guessed. I think that, you know, it makes sense that, it, that these things happen in, you know, gradually and that uh, the fact that women are at least getting a hearing and this, you know, Fakakta uh, scientific test is a sign of progress. I can I can totally understand that. And actually, the first thing that occurred to me too is that like the results of the test are so ambiguous, right? Is her stomach distended or whatever it was you said? Is the flesh in her thighs sagging? Like, you know, those are judgment calls, I would imagine. So again, you know, you're giving this judge um, room for interpretation and maybe for some leniency. Maybe this is a chance for for the judge to make sure that that harsh sentences were not administered uh, freely uh, or willy-nilly. So um, I can see where this might be a sign of progress in its very strange way. Well, I think you have someone like Jacob Milgram, who is one of the great Bible scholars, who makes this really interesting point that it was either this or the gallows. Mm -hmm. A woman had no rights. We're dealing in a society where um, the husband could do pretty much whatever he wanted in that moment in time. For the first time, there's a higher law than the patriarch of his clan, the head of his his family. And this is a huge shift in the rights of women, that a woman could actually be heard in trial or at least be seen and be represented. I was thinking as as we were talking that, it's not all that different than the pill and how that affected women and society. You've written an entire book on the subject. But this, this idea that the world shifted for women with the advent of the pill is probably no less seismic than that of the Sotan. Yeah, you know, what occurred to me, too, is that um, we're only getting one account of this history and the Torah was written by men. Um, we don't know how women played a role in forcing this change. Because one of the things we see throughout history is that, you know, human hate behavior changes before the laws change. And it could be that women were asserting themselves in ways that made it necessary for the men to adapt and to change the rules and to give them a hearing, at least, and to give them a chance at justice. Uh, you know, we saw this in in more recent history when, 
you know, women began demanding abortions before they were legal, and that changed the uh, the laws. We saw it when women began demanding birth control, and we see it now as women are fighting against laws that are attempting to take away their rights to control their own bodies. So I like to think about uh, and imagine what was going on um, at the time that might have compelled this change, and I would be willing to bet that women played some role in that. You said something that kind of made me pause when you started. You said, well, the Torah was written by men. And yet we look at it not only as an ancient document written by men, but we also look at it as divinely inspired. So we'd like to think that part of the enlightened sense of the Torah is reflected in the divine voice. And you might say, well, if that's the case, why doesn't God simply say that women are equal to men? And you'd have to then go through an entire conversation about, well, that was an idea that wasn't ready for its time yet. That would have been a bridge too far. But putting that aside, I really like what you're saying about the fact that women were raising their voices. But if that's the case, Jonathan, why is this the only place where that's happening? This isn't happening anywhere else. We don't see a law like this. We don't see the opportunity for women to be represented in this way until much later. This is a pretty early adaptation of this idea for a society. That's a great question. And I would probably go back to the same basic supposition. And that is that um, divinely inspired, yes, but at least written by the hands of men. And the men are deciding what to record and what not to record. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, the women are being left out, I think. And um, I'm not a scholar, (laughs) but it just seems to me like a pretty basic um, assumption. Well, I I want to support what you're saying by acknowledging another story that comes later in the book of Numbers. It's about the daughters of Slovchad, and they come to Moses because there are no male heirs in their family. And according to the law, their family's land holdings will go to men other than them, even though they should be the direct heirs. And so Moses takes this question to God, and God changes the law. God changes the law. So I want to say that that supports you, that there is something going on that if we're saying that men and women are both created in the image of God, that this idea is permeating and giving women in Jewish society the uh, voice that they need and the support that they need to raise this issue and, in fact, kind of create this moment in time. Yeah, it would be my strong belief that women are raising their voices throughout all of this history. It's only occasionally being recorded, unfortunately, because um, that's just, you know, who controls the, um, the the storytelling at the time. But every once in a while, their voices permeate, their voices rise through and find a way of being heard. I, I like to at least think that that's what's, hap- that's what's happening here. It's a powerful idea. Well, thank you, Jonathan. This is enlightening. And while the text may be cringeworthy, it doesn't mean we can't learn from it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We can cringe and then move on to actual uh, conversation. And that's what we did today. And I really enjoyed it. That's what makes a Torah a living document. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Rabbi. <laughs>